Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Luigi Zangales of the University of Chicago. Professor Zangales is one of the co-authors of a recent research paper entitled, How Pervasive is Corporate Fraud? Welcome back, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. My pleasure. Professor, before we discuss the answer to the question raised by your paper, how pervasive is corporate fraud? Can you first explain to our listeners how you define corporate fraud for the purposes of your study? Yes, I think that uh, that's a very good question because that's a very important issue in our paper and in research in general. So from a legal point of view, I think that fraud is deception with intent to deceive. And uh, in practice, it's very difficult to prove intent short of doing a trial and proving in the court of law. And uh, when it comes to corporate malfeasance, most of the time corporations settle out of court because they don't want to have the liability of having uh, being proven fraudulent in court. And so what we are observing, if you want major corporate uh, malfeasances or misrepresentation or misconduct, and we label it fraud because uh, we think it underlying there is fraud, but we cannot prove it behind reasonable doubt. So, Professor, given your definition of corporate fraud, now answer the question. So how pervasive is corporate fraud? So, first of all, I, I need to explain to the listener that uh, it's actually quite complicated to measure the pervasion of the corporate fraud because what we tend to observe is simply how often fraud is detected. However, as we know, there is a lot of fraud that never gets detected and uh, is a bit like the dog that didn't bark is difficult to identify. And so the clever point of the paper, if there is one, is trying to find a way where we can figure it out on average how much fraud does not get detected. And the idea behind the paper is very simple, is Immediately after the collapse of Enron, all firms got nervous to have Arthur Anderson as an auditor, so much so that there was basically a run away from Arthur Anderson and eventually Arthur Anderson collapsed. But uh, our assumption here is that uh, whoever took as an auditor some former client of Arthur Anderson decided that it was a pretty good idea to do a thorough review of what was getting. And so think about as uh, house cleaning before taking on the account. And so the idea is that while uh, companies subject to or whether as an audit or other audit firms did not go through this house cleaning, uh, or at least not to the same extent, the clients of Arthur Anderson did go through an extensive house cleaning. And so they end up revealing the amount of fraud that normally does not get revealed, but get, in this particular case, got revealed from more serious uh, investigation. And the beauty of this is that this is an uh, unexpected event because, of course, if I announce that I'm going to have more enforcement against fraud, I think that people are afraid and they react by temporarily committing less fraud. Here, this event was unexpected, so we don't have uh, a, a behavioral response. So we can figure out what fraction is really sort of remain undetected. And the bottom line is that uh, roughly two-thirds of the frauds get uh, undetected. 
And then once you add that number, you simply apply this multiplier by the number of frauds that get detected and you get the average number of fraud per company. And our estimate is that among large publicly traded company, we are the order of one out of 10. Professor, as you indicated, your study finds that only one third of corporate frauds are detected. And the total amount of corporate fraud is three times the corporate fraud that's observed. So, Professor, with all the laws, the rules, and regulations governing U.S. public companies, why do so many corporate frauds go undetected? That's a very good question. I don't think that uh, our paper really addresses this question. So at this point, I can only speculate. But uh, I think that the simple answer is there is a large apparatus designed to help the CEO hide the fraud. One of the policy idea that my co-authors and I and advocated since the early 2000s is actually to create a whistleblower program where people actually get paid if they reveal some uh, fraud, precisely to undermine the network of accomplices that make the fraud possible and make the fraud last. Because in a large corporation, Nothing gets done if only one person wants to do it because good governance has a set of check and balances that requires uh, the agreement of multiple people to pull off any amount of fraud. So I think that uh, my simple answer is, is because there is too much collusion inside companies and because to this day, it's staying against you to reveal some wrongdoing in your company. All the famous whistleblower, for example, of Enron, et cetera, they end up being unemployed afterward because nobody wants a niche and a spy in its own company. Professor, your paper finds that accounting violations less severe than alleged securities fraud are prevalent with an average annual pervasiveness of 41%. Your paper comments that this estimate does not bode well for the U.S. auditing system. Please explain that comment. And could you provide our listeners with three specific recommendations for improving the U.S. auditing system? We, in the United States, we have since 1934, a system of mandatory auditing for publicly traded companies. This mandatory auditing is quite expensive. And I always thought, before I start doing serious research on the topic, I always thought that uh, the main purpose uh, for this audit is to have not only reliable data, but, uh, accounting data, but also to make sure to minimize the risk of fraud. The irony is that audit firms don't see their role as the one to uncover fraud. And uh, the answer is pretty obvious why that's the case is because when uh, auditing was not mandatory, the auditors needed to justify their existence. And the way they justify their existence is saying, oh, because we fight to eliminate fraud. The moment it became mandatory, they didn't need to justify their existence anymore. They needed just to, because demand was granted, what they needed to do is just minimize cost. And how do you minimize cost? You minimize liability. So the entire audit profession is trying to argue the crazy idea, in my view, that auditors are not supposed to reveal any fraud. So 
So the first thing that uh, I would do is that I would make the auditors responsible to identify when a fraud exists. And this is a, a change of attitude because it's not just covering your behind, to use a technical term, but is actually proactively figured out whether something is done according to the law or not according to the law. And I have been on board of public traded companies, and I can assure you that the attitude I saw in auditors was a very passive attitude. When I was pointing out to say, don't you think that this transaction is suspicious and might be part of a bribing scheme? they will uh, withdraw rather than uh, trying to find out whether that was the case. So I think that that would be my first proposal. The second is, um, I was actually very in favor of the idea that Senator Hal Franken had to randomly assign auditors to firms. In fact, I will uh, add a twist, and I say that the probability of uh, each auditor being drawn should be a function of the performance of the auditors in the past. So the better my performance, the more likely I'm drawn as a a possible auditor of company ABC. And uh, if I did very poorly, I'm uh, less likely. So I do retain some incentives to do well, but I break down the connection between uh, being hired and being complacent because there is a natural uh, I scratch your back, you scratch my back present in uh, audit companies and companies today. And the only way to break this is to go to a, a random assignment. And you can do a random assignment every so many years. You don't do it to do every year because it's costly to change the auditor every year. But if I know that next year, a different auditor can come in, then I'm going to be much, much more careful. And then uh, number three, I reiterate my proposal of uh, payment at a water whistleblower. The Dodd-Frank in part espoused that principle, but only very limitedly because uh, uh, the SEC has to embrace the cause in order to proceed. And, And very often the SEC behave politically. So what I want is that, like in fraud against the government, you have uh, a form that is called KETAM, where individuals can uh, sue in name of the government. And uh, and if they win, uh, they get uh, 10 or 15% of the proceed that the government gets. And so I want something similar for corporation where you can sue in name of the shareholders. And if you succeed, you get 10 or 15% of the award. And I think that this should be true for suit against uh, auditors as well. That will make uh, auditors be on their toes. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, Professor Luigi Zingales of the University of Chicago. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff. J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. 
The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.